0: Day, <laughs> uh, but we're glad we're glad that you're here, and I, and I'm very I'm very glad you're here because for some of you, Dr. Walton is uh, a person that you've heard before and benefited from his ministry. For some of you, it'll be for the first time. But uh, Dr. Walton, who is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College uh, and in uh, graduate school as well, um, a S- Semitic languages expert, ancient Near Eastern expert, has written many of the the, the definitive materials uh, that help folks like uh, me to study and actually to bless a lot of people to understand scripture much more, um, has become something of a mentor to our community uh, and uh, has done much uh, to shape uh, some of the, even some of the teaching series that we've done in the past. If you were at Highway Palo Alto and Job, uh, Daniel, and especially in Genesis. And so this is actually the fourth time that Dr. Walton has been here with us. And uh, he's already preached at Mountain View twice and Palo Alto once this morning, um, and it's just uh, it's 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 a it's a great message, an incredible message, um, but um, and it's also a very important one. It's very interesting how what Dr. Walton will be talking about tonight is actually going to lead us into a message series that is going to come in February, and we'll talk about that more later. But for right now, let me please let me introduce to you, Dr. John Walton.
1: Thanks, Dean. Nice to see you all. I recognize some familiar faces. Seen you before. Thanks for coming out. We're going to talk about some things tonight that are really, really important for us to understand. We're going to talk about some things like, what's the Bible all about? And what has God always wanted? And why has God created us? Then in the next 10 minutes, we're going to... No, okay. That'll give us plenty to talk about tonight. We're going to track things across the whole scope of Scripture. And I'll still get you out at a decent hour. Why did God create us? You know, in the ancient world, they had ideas about that. If you had talked to Babylonians or Egyptians... That idea is about why God created us. See, they believed that the gods had needs. The gods needed to eat. The gods needed clothing and housing, kind of just like people do. Above all, the gods needed to be pampered. And the gods got tired of trying to take care of themselves and meet their own needs. And so they got the great idea that they could create slave labor. They could create people who would take care of their needs, who would feed them and build them glorious houses and give them wonderful food and clothing and just pamper them like crazy. And that's why they created people, to be slaves. And then, of course, If they wanted the people to continue to be able to do all of that, they needed to take care of the people. The people needed to survive. They had to have enough rainfall to raise their crops, to feed themselves and to feed the gods. And they had to be protected from enemies and all of these things. So the way that people understood it in the ancient world, there was this this relationship, this symbiotic relationship, a a relationship of mutual codependence. Excuse me. Which created a very dysfunctional situation, to be sure. That's how it was in the ancient world, the world that Israel lived in. But you don't have to go many pages in the Bible to find out that that's not really descriptive of the God of the Bible. In fact, He has no needs, He doesn't need food or housing, or clothing. He doesn't desire to be pampered. And he made people not to be his slaves to meet his needs. He made people because he wanted to be in relationship with them. You don't find that too much in the ancient Near East. The desire of relationship. And not only did God want to be in relationship with them, he wanted to live among them. (coughs) That is what God always wanted. To be in relationship, living among his people. That's why he created us. And it's that story that the Bible is all about. Now look at that, I answered all three questions right away. I mean, spoiler alert. What are we going to do with the rest of the time? Well, like a good math problem, I've given you the answer that I'm going to come to, but now I better show you my work. And I need to show it to you because you need to see how these things develop throughout Scripture to see that this indeed is what God's plan has been from the start. We can start as early as Genesis chapter one. Those of you who have heard me talk about Genesis one before, I think we did that about four years ago, but at any rate, if you were around and heard me talk about Genesis one, you know that one of the emphases that I have there is the idea that when God created this world, the focus of that story is not so much on what we might call the cosmic house, the stuff of the universe. It's more about how God ordered it to be sacred space. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm going to be fighting with that. I've been talking a lot today. Got some water here. We'll try to use it. God built the the house unquestionably. But Genesis 1 is more about how he made it a home, a home for people and a home for himself. Because he intended to dwell here among us. And so when God rests, it's not just a matter of him kicking back and relaxing. When God rests, he's taking up the rule of this home that he has set out. We can pick this up. We're going to put a lot of scripture up on the screens as we go through it. We picked this up uh, in Psalm 132. So you can take a look at that one. There we go. (coughs) I am sorry. He says, this is my resting place. He's talking about the temple. The temple is where God rests. And that doesn't mean that he sleeps. Look at the verse. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned. When God rests, He's resting on a throne. He's ruling. For I have desired it. This is what God has always wanted. (coughs) Excuse me. Just ponder that a moment. (laughs) I'll risk leaving that, the cap off, and see how that goes. So that's what God set up from the start, Genesis chapter 1. And we can see then that God takes up his residence among the people he created in the Garden of Eden. We sometimes think of the Garden of Eden as you know, paradise, a wonderful vacation spot. Bring the family. You know, make sure you leave your campsite as you found it. It's, you know, we think of it as sort of a, just a lovely setting. And in that, we miss the point. The Garden of Eden is where God dwells. and We're talking about the presence of God here. And as he dwelled in this place, he related to the people that he put there. So we find this idea of God dwelling among his people. But of course, things quickly go awry. People disobey, they want to be the center of things, they want to be the focus, and they sin. And as a result, worst part of all, they're driven out of God's presence. They lose access to him. That relationship is broken, you know the story. But the the horror of that moment is not just the idea that sin has entered into the world, that's bad enough, The horror of the moment is that God's presence has been lost. The very reason that God set everything up to dwell among his people in relationship, gone. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how we get back on track with what God has always wanted. So in Genesis chapter 4, our next verse, as we look at it, we find that just one generation after Adam and Eve, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, the text tells us, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now we read that and we just think, oh, okay, they're praying. That's cool, you know, prayer's good. No, no, this means more than that. This phrase is used not just for praying, but when people want to invoke God's presence. This is that call in the night, come back. We miss you. We want to get it back. See, this early, calling on the name of the Lord, that his name might be reestablished among them. And so we make our way through the early chapters of Genesis, and we get to chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And we find that it's not quite what we've often read it to be. We've often read the Tower of Babel and think that they're building this tower because they want to get up to God in their pride and arrogance. They want to burst into heaven, to attack him, to overthrow him, to join with what? That's what we often think. And that's because we don't know something about the ancient Near East that they all knew very well, that we had to kind of recover. And that is that these are ziggurats. And ziggurats are built not so that people can go up, but so that God can come down. Ziggurats were built next to temples. And the idea was that the God would come down, the ziggurat. It's like the executive elevator, you know? I mean, it's for him alone. It's sacred space, part of of the temple, really. He would come down and then enter into the temple and be worshipped. The Tower of Babel is an attempt, an initiative by people to reestablish sacred space. What was lost at the fall? Bring God back. Come on, back down. We've made it easy. Here's a nice stairway. We've got a lovely temple here. Come back down. And we might think, well, why why didn't God jump at the chance? Why didn't he just kind of say, okay, that's a great idea? Well, we find out that there's a problem. The problem is their motivation. The text tells us they wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, we've often read that, as I said, as, a, as kind of an act of pride. And maybe there was some pride driving it, but there's something else going on there. Remember that Seth, at his time, they were calling on the name of the Lord to be established among them. In Deuteronomy, God talks about a place where there's going to be his presence, where he's going to place his name. The tower builders want to make a place for God's presence, but they want to exalt their own name. If it's going to be sacred space, God's name ought to be exalted. God's name ought to be raised up, not theirs. So they wanted God back, but they wanted him back on their own terms for their name to be lifted up. Why would they think that their name could be lifted up by reestablishing sacred space? Well, remember my description of the ancient world at the beginning. See, if you establish a place for God and you take care of that God, the expectation is that that God is going to take care of you. And so this gives them a chance to pamper God, to meet his needs, and that he in turn will make them Fat and happy, prosperous, successful, wealthy, rich and famous. It's about them. They don't really want God's presence back because of who God is. They want to exalt their own name, advance their own position. And it's interesting because they built it for God to come down, and indeed in verse 5, God comes down. Looks around and says... No way. This is not how this is going to go. And so it becomes a failed initiative. And the people's languages are confused and they're dispersed. Failed initiative. It's no coincidence that the next chapter in your Bible is Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we find God's counter-initiative. We've had a failed human initiative, now God's counter-initiative. We don't usually call it that, we call it the covenant. The covenant is not just God kind of picking Abraham practically at random and deciding he's going to make an agreement with him to give him some real estate. We think all kinds of things when we read this passage. But the purpose of the covenant is there clearly set forward. The purpose of the covenant is that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, if we ask how are all the nations of the earth to be blessed through Abraham and his family, if you grew up in Sunday school, you're trained in this. You raise your hand and you say, Jesus. That's what you do in Sunday school. Just raise your hand and say, Jesus. Just hold that thought. We're not there yet. Okay, there's a lot of blessing coming through the family of Abraham before you get to Jesus. The front line of that blessing is that through Abraham and his family, God is going to reestablish his presence on the earth. That's how all the nations of the earth will be blessed because God's coming back to set up his presence here on earth, as it was. Because that's what God has always wanted. And that's going to happen through Abraham and his family. We can see now that God gives them land, not just because you need a place to live, not as a geopolitical state, not as my own personal slice of real estate, hope there aren't taxes. God gives them land He doesn't really give it to them. He gives them tenancy on it, the land where he is going to dwell. It's his land, and they're going to live there. And we find then that he appoints them as a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. Priests who will preserve the sanctity of sacred space. God coming back to dwell among his people, to be in relationship with them. Now let's see that picked up in the next verse that we're looking at here in Leviticus 26. I will put my dwelling place among you, right? Dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. In the next verse, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do you see it? Presence, relationship. See how they go hand in hand here. And that's what the covenant and God's covenant people are about. Now, of course, God's presence appears briefly in the flare of the burning bush. God's presence appears protectively in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. God's presence descends on Mount Sinai. And we look at that Mount Sinai moment, and we think that that's focused on the whole idea of God giving the law. And God does give the law. But I'm I'm thinking that that's really not the most important focus here. What else does God give when he comes down on Mount Sinai? It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the law of Moses. God gives him instructions for building the tabernacle. Now see, you, your mind doesn't jump to that because when you get to those tabernacle chapters for 13 chapters in Exodus, you go, you go just dumb blind. You know, what in the world? All this detail. They're constructing sacred space, a place for God to live. God is going to come and take up his residence among these people, and that's why he gives them the law because he is a holy God. And they have been brought into the circle of his holy identity, conferred a holy status, and they have to know how to live in the presence of a holy God. And that's what the law is. Helping them to know how to live in the presence of a holy God. Because he's coming back. He's coming back to live among them. And they don't want the Eden thing to happen again. That was real awkward. And so sacred space, a place of God's presence. I call it sacred space. It's sacred because God lives there. When God's presence is there, sacred space. Take off your shoes, Moses. Okay? So sacred space is established, God's presence. It's not chapter 20 of Exodus, God booming his voice from Mount Sinai. That's the big part. It's chapter 40 of Exodus, and the presence of God descended and took up his residence among people. First time since Eden. What a day. So there was God dwelling among his people. <coughs> and it was, it's a tough thing to have God dwelling in your midst. There's responsibility. That's what the law was. But things could also go desperately wrong. Because God's presence is not something to fool around with. And So we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses lays it out. This is just when they're ready to enter the promised land. and Moses lays it out for them. This day, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, What will go right if you succeed? What will go horribly wrong if you don't? And so now, I've set them before you. Choose life. Choose life. So that you and your children may live. That you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. We find life in the presence of God. And so they enter the land, the land granted to them by God, because he's going to live there. It's his land. He's going to live there. They're his priests. And they are there to serve in sacred space, to live out their holy calling. Time goes on. We go through the centuries of the Judges period and into the Kingdom period, and they've got the tabernacle. We don't hear much about it in Judges, but of course it picks up again with David, and then Solomon builds his temple. And those centuries have gone by. We hear in Solomon's dedicatory prayer that these same basic ideas have not been lost. And so we read in 1 Kings chapter eight, we'll get it up on the screen there. Praise be to the Lord. This is Solomon's dedicatory prayer. Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. See, the covenant, just as he promised his people. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. So may the Lord our God be with us. That's what the temple's for. As he was with our ancestors in the tabernacle, may he never leave us or forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, relationship, do you see it? To walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws that he gave our ancestors. Presence, relationship. So they understand, this is what the temple is. And so we have the temple established. Time goes on. Century follows century, generation after generation, and the temple is there. But Israel struggles. We know the stories, we read them in the prophets. And things get worse and worse until God starts saying, It's not going to work. If you don't straighten up, judgment is coming. The covenant curses are going to be realized. And so, what happens? We get it in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 10, where he sees a vision of God's presence lifting up on a portable throne and rushing away. God leaving all over again. Eden all over again. God's presence lost. But even as Ezekiel makes this clear to the people, we hear that God has plans to restore his people Israel. God has plans to come back and dwell among them. And We read it in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 34, we get some of this picture. Yeah, let's read that one first. Ezekiel 34, as he's planning this restoration. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. See, it's the same thing, God's presence. And the Israelites are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. So that's his plan for them. Uh, We see it a little further in Ezekiel 37. (coughs) My servant David will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. That's the relationship part. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there in perpetuity, everlasting. And David, my servant, will be their prince. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's this new covenant. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an enduring covenant. I will establish them, increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them. So the idea that he's coming back, my dwelling place will be with them. And, here's the relationship part, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them. Presence, relationship. In Jeremiah 31, we read more of this new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, even in the midst of all of this struggle with Jeremiah and with Ezekiel, the people losing Jerusalem, temple being destroyed, even before that all starts to reach its peak, we find an idea that's floating out there. They're looking for someone who represents this concept. And the name comes out in the text. It's the name Emmanuel. You know what it means. God with us. But I hope now it's ringing a bell in your head here to say, see how that is part of this huge theme all the way through. God with us. Now, even as they anticipated Emmanuel moments, God being with them in various contexts, they really had no way of imagining what that was going to look like. But as we cross the boundary into the New Testament, we see it taking shape. And so in John chapter 1, verse 14, we learn about this Emmanuel a little bit. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's tabernacle language that it uses there. Made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, his glory. Remember, the glory of God overshadowed the temple and manifested in the temple. And this is talking about Jesus as a temple. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we come into the New Testament, we find there's a quantum leap in this idea of God's presence among his people. Because now this isn't in a building, in a geographical location, but rather this is God's presence in the flesh, the incarnation. And even as God's presence takes this quantum leap as Jesus comes among them, we also find that he comes in order to bring about a reconciliation that far exceeds the possibilities for a relationship that had existed up until this time. Relationship was going to take a new turn as well. We move through Jesus' life in ministry, and we get to the upper room, and Jesus tells his disciples the crushing news. It sounds like Ezekiel's vision. It sounds like Eden. He says, "I'm leaving." They say, oh, no, you can't do this. (coughs) He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Presence. Relationship. That's what God has always wanted. To be among his people. And the ascension up into heaven, he leaves them with the words of what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And look at the words again. He talks about teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what does he say? Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there's a lot Jesus told them about in that upper room that they didn't understand very much. And he told them to wait, and they waited. in those 50 days till Pentecost go by. And then what happens? They experience the presence of God descending to take up dwelling among them. No, not just among them, in them. Now, does that wording sound a little familiar? Go back to the human initiative in the Tower of Babel, where they built the tower so that God might descend and take up his dwelling place among them. That didn't work so well. But now, the Spirit of God descends on them, takes up his residence in them, and look at the reversal that happens. Instead of the people's languages being confused so they can't understand one another, everyone hears Peter's message in their own language. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And what the tower builders tried to accomplish is now being initiated by God the way it's always supposed to have been. God's presence coming down and dwelling now in them. And it's not only a reversal of the Tower of Babel, it's also the completion, the accomplishment of the covenant goals. Look what Peter says in Acts chapter two. This is 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized. It talks about relationship there. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that's the reconciliation for relationship, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look at the next verse. The promise, what promise, what promise? The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, but more broadly speaking, the promise of the covenant that was initiated way back. This is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so all the nations are to be blessed because God has taken up his dwelling on earth. And the result of Pentecost and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that the people themselves, God's people, become the dwelling place of God. And so Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oops, that one too. Let's go to 6, yes. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Another quantum leap from geographical sacred space, tabernacle and temple, to incarnate sacred space, Jesus living among us, to now spirit sacred space, God living among us, and we are the temple. And so we find then that God is establishing his presence among his people and the blood of Jesus has provided for that indwelling because now we are reconciled to him through the blood of Christ and as a result are able to be in relationship with him. Presence and relationship. Now, of course, that's, that's where we are now. We are the temple. The spirit indwells us. We are reconciled to God through Christ. Christ. But there's still more of the story to come. And we'd be remiss to stop before we get there. Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their Hard to miss, isn't it? Presence. Relationship. Because this is what God always wanted. It's why he made us. It's what the Bible is all about. This is the story of the Bible. The gospel is a big part of it, but it's only a part of it. God fulfilling what he always wanted, to dwell among his people. Now, what does that require of us? Remember, God has given us the place, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, God has called us as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, as a holy priesthood. And therefore, just as Israel was called to be, to live out their holiness in the presence of God, so the presence of God is in us and we are called to live out that holy status which has been conferred on us by God. What does it mean then to live out this holiness in the presence of God? What does it require of us? There's a fellow named Brother Lawrence who wrote a long time ago, and um, he worked in a monastery, served in a monastery, worked in the kitchens, in the gardens. And he got a little frustrated with this idea that somehow you have matins and you have vespers and that that somehow is supposed to, to do it, but he didn't feel like somehow that was making his life in the presence of God be what it ought to be. So he decided that he was going to try to engage a little more with this idea. And so he decided that every hour throughout the day, he would just take a moment and wouldn't stop what he was doing, doing whatever he was doing, but also multitasking, taking a moment and turning his thoughts toward God, reminding himself that God was there with him, dwelling in him, that God's holy presence was there. And that his life ought to reflect that knowledge and that fact once an hour. Just turn his mind briefly. Not necessarily a prayer. Okay, could do it while he was doing what he did. And he started liking how that, how that changed his perspective. And so then it started to be every half hour, every half hour. Morning devotions wasn't enough. Then it was every 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. Ping, ping, touch base. Remember who you are. Remember what you're doing. Remember who dwells within you. Practicing the presence of God. He wants to be in relationship with us. Relationship takes connection. And he is living not just among us, but within us. I was at a conference several years ago, a small conference, less than 100 people, uh, invitation only, and I felt greatly honored to have been invited, kind of in awe, seeing name badges and just, you know, Gog and looked silly probably, but just it was a very interesting conference. And I noticed that there was somebody there, a biblical scholar that I had just uh, admired for so long, the work and uh, that he'd done and all of this and was just, oh, Matt, there he is right there, you know, this, this person that I, that I felt so um, incredibly impressed by. And they broke us into small groups a little bit later on, you know, small groups of maybe 15 or 20, and this person was in that same small group. And I I almost didn't kind of hear what was going on very much because I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that here I am in this same room with this this person, and wow. And um, the small group session ended, and next thing I know, this fellow comes bounding across the room right in my direction, takes my hand and starts pumping it and wringing my hand, telling me how glad he is to meet me and, and how he's been reading my work and, and he'd, he'd really love to, to talk to me. Can we find a moment to sit down and, and talk a little bit and, you know, share some ideas and let me pick your brain? And I'm just, you know, stunned by it. I'm never going to wash this hand again. Oh, my goodness, what am I going? ha, oh, you know? And then, of course, I, I got a hold of myself, and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, I'm pretty busy. Maybe a couple of weeks you be able to get together with something. Your people can talk to my people. No! <laughs> no, no, no. It was, you know, is now too soon, you know? Um, <laughs> but imagine how that pales in contrast to the idea that the God of the universe has come bounding across the cosmos, not just to shake your hand, but to embrace you, and to say, I want to get to know you. I want you to get to know me. I want us to hang out together. And somehow, we're not as impressed we should be. Because God created us to be in relationship with us, to dwell among us. That's what the Bible story is all about. And that is what God has always wanted. Let's pray. Lord, we're a grateful people often not grateful enough. We remember things that you have done for us, as we've done tonight, as we've taken communion together. And that's so important. But there's so much more to it. We pray that you will help us to know how to practice your presence, how to live up to the holy calling that we've received, how to honor your presence within us and to be your people in relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.